The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Today's guest is Chantal Martin. Now, the episode was recorded a few weeks ago, which is why we don't address the current events and the Black Lives Matter movement. As you know, we didn't release an episode of the show last week out of respect for the movement and to take time to listen and support. However, I wanted to release this episode today and encourage you all to follow along with what Chantal is currently doing around the movement. We'll continue to do our part to listen, help and support the Black Lives Matter movement. Welcome to the Shaken and Stirred show. I am Nigel Barker and I am holed up in Woodstock. <laughs> and I'm with my co-host, who's looking very happy with himself. Uh, and you're in Blighty. In Blighty, in Oxfordshire, absolutely. We're hold up, hold down around here and not going anywhere fast, I guess. Well, you know, these are the quarantine sessions, my friend, and they seem to be going pretty well. I, I'm quite enjoying it, actually, this sort of lonesome drinking, but, uh, sh you know, sharing a moment with everybody, sort of both virtually and not social distancing, but physically distancing. I like that. I like that expression more. Physically distancing. But you know something? Something occurred to me. We, we decided to do a cocktail program some time ago. But, you know, a year ago, we sat down and we thought, well, let's do a thing about cocktails. No one talks about cocktails anymore. Cocktails are out of fashion. No one, you know, there are great cocktail makers. There are fantastic history. There are great things going on with cocktails. But no one really talks about it. There's nothing, you know, going on with it. So we decided to create Shake and the Stern, right? We thought, you know, why not? This is a clever thing to do. No one's done it, right? And then... We get hit with this pandemic. And what happens? You get a house party every Friday night, and there's this massive resurgence, and everyone's showing off how they can make the different cocktails from home. I know. So, it's crazy. Even some of our previous guests that we had on the show have started their own cocktail podcasts. So yeah. excited were they. Duncan Quinn, old alum of Shaken and Stirred, has gone on and done his own um, cocktail show, which good for him. Well, I don't think good for him at all. So I say outrageous. Well, how unoriginal. I mean, why does he think it's something new? How to recut a suit, you know, something. Or make a decent suit, anyway. But on brighter notes, let's go on to our booze news, shall we, before we start slagging off all our own previous guests for copying our great idea. Let's do a little bit of booze news. And in booze news, one of the interesting things I found is, look, AI, artificial intelligence, is being used to make alcoholic beverages. And to the point, gin. Now, gin is one of the more complex, although it's one of the older alcohols. There are so many different botanicals you can add to it. We know it for its juniper flavor, but they've created an AI program called Jeanette. It's kind of sexy. Hello, Jeanette. Hello, Nigel. Um, <laughs> make me a gin. And Jeanette basically comes up with the, the botanicals and she's come up with six different types of gin, one of which has become very successful and has launched a thousand bottles, short um, line, um, and, and it's called Monica's Garkle. It's a horrible name. I think it actually came up with a name as well. But anyway, it, it also the, the actual design of the label is a bit sort of sci-fi, if you ask me. But it's interesting. It shows what's happening in the world of alcohol that, you know, will sommeliers, for example, in wine eventually lose their job if all of a sudden a computer can taste wine better than they can with perfect taste, for example. Very interesting. Well, over to you, Tom. What have you got for me, booze news-wise? Well, what I gotta say is a is a gin garkle is, is like a saying, it's like a martini markle. Is there anything to do with the fact that Well who knows? These computers apparently are sort of programmed 
um, to, to sort of figure all of these things out, right? They're programmed to, to, to take the whole history of alcohol. I mean, in many ways, you can put whatever you like into a computer, right? You can program it to no taste, to no flavors, to no smells, to understand every aspect of what's being done, things that we can't remember. But the human touch is what I'm worried about. The human all right, touch. I'm with you on that. But look, if you go to the Urban Dictionary and look up Garkor, definition is gargle is the noise that frogs make when they try to speak human so should we leave it at that which is quite frankly how i sound after i've had a few gins um let's leave it at that what are you drinking tom i tonight i'm drinking um jameson's black barrel i was gonna have an irish coffee but for me it's 10 o'clock at night you guys are on different time zones and i suddenly realized if i started drinking coffee at this time of night i would just be up all night so i'm just having a straight not even on the rocks, just Jameson, Jameson's water, that's it. Smooth, mellow, black barrel, and one of my favourites. I'm also drinking a glass of 2000 Leerville bottle. Oh, you're drinking two at the same time, I like it. Double fisting, old boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have been basically informed that our next guest is a tea time, tea time totaler, um, which is very unusual for Shaken and Stirred, although I thought I'd celebrate with her and have a Long Island iced tea, um, which, yeah. by the way, I you know I haven't made one of these in in forever, and I remember drinking them when I was young, and I remember now why I probably don't drink them anymore. Um, although it is quite delicious in a way, because there's so many things in it. It's made with gin, vodka, rum, tequila, triple sec, lemon juice, and coke. Give me strength is all I can say, because I don't know how I'm going to get through it. But anyway, we're very excited for our next guest, someone who I met sort of several years ago in, a, in the most sort of unlikely of ways. And we'll get into that when uh, we start chatting. But she has literally rocketed to sort of international fame in the art scene. And I'm very excited to have a guest who's basically her work speaks for itself. You know, if you see her work, you'll know her. Um, and all of you, I imagine, have seen her work someplace, somewhere. And even friends of mine who I mention her name, they go, I think I know who that is. And then they see her work and they're like, oh my God, of course, I saw it here, I saw it there. You know, and as an artist, that's exactly what you want to be known for, your work. Please welcome Chantal Martin to Shaken and Stirred. Hello. <laughs> Good afternoon. Good afternoon, love. And are you in New York? Uh, actually, I live in Jersey City now. So I'm in Jersey City, just across the water from you. Ah, so you get the view of the yeah, city. Yeah, I've, I've got the good view. Fantastic. And what are we drinking? So actually, I'm drinking in a, a nice one of my mugs, someday, one day, today. But um, I'm drinking some Irish breakfast tea. Uh, I'm a big tea drinker. I'm usually drinking English breakfast tea. I didn't even know this was a thing until two weeks ago, but supermarket ran out of English breakfast. So all in with the Irish. Is you it know? better than English breakfast? You know what? It's about the same. I don't know if I should, you know, people might argue with me, but it, it tastes about the same. I have never heard of it. I never heard of it. Until you just mentioned, I mean, literally, I'd never heard of it. I did not know it existed. And funny enough, I was in New Zealand late last year and they have a New Zealand breakfast tea, which was very good too. But Tom, you're drinking Irish whiskey. Well, I, I had heard today, that was the first time I'd heard that Irish tea existed. So I was going to come back with an Irish coffee, but I'm in England and it's 10 o'clock at night. And I suddenly realised if I drank an Irish coffee, I'd be up all night. So... Well, I'm having a Jameson's Black Barrel to compliment your tea. And I'm joining you with a Long Island iced tea. How about that? Cheers. Cheers. 
Nothing to do with Ireland, but it is in the tea family. And by the way, there's a lot of spiked teas. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that Chantal spiked her tea, people. You don't get to be as creative as she is with just having a little tea, <laughs> a little tea time. So Chantal, you know, it, it is extraordinary, your career. And I know that, you know, you, you, you've obviously done so many amazing things. I want to talk about what you've done and where you go in your process. But first of all, just the story of how we met, because that, that and it was, it's, you're quite, you're very humble. You're very low key, in, in my opinion. And you are someone who sort of, you're, you're below the radar, but very much above the radar in everything that you do. Everything you do is bigger, larger, and the projects get more and more sort of amazing. You, you know, you draw and find canvases are anything and everything to you. Um, yet when I met you, you was just the most down to earth person I'd ever met, which is not what I was used to in the art world. How do those two jive for you? Why is that? How does that work? I think if you have your feet firmly on the ground, that's where you'll stay. And, you know, I've, uh, I'm from Southeast London. I'm from Thamesmead. And, you know, I've worked really hard to get where I am. And I'm a big non-believer in this idea that you have to be an important, not nice artist, you know. And there's a lot of these important artists out there in the world that are unobtainable, unapproachable, not very nice to work with or to, to, to end, talk with and on any of those levels. And so for me, it's been a bit of a mission to be as successful as I can, as prolific as I can be, and as nice and as grounded at the same time. Thamesmead. I mean, a lot of our people listening don't know what Thamesmead is, where it is, what that means. So, you know, what, what is it? What was it like growing up in Thamesmead? Yeah. Tell, talk, tell us about Thamesmead. So if anyone's seen Clockwork Orange or The Misfits or a whole number of car commercials, you know, it's a big, you know, huge concrete estate, council estate, not the nice estate, um, built in like the late 1960s. And, you know, it was a... Like the projects in the US. It's basically like the, the US equivalent of the projects, not the nicest place to grow up. Uh, actually, they've been knocking most of it down in the last few years. And, you know, when you grow up in a place like that, generally, you know, no one that you know has finished school. Um, there's no A-levels or higher education offered. Um, no one, you don't really know um, or see examples of people being doctors or nurses or, you know, like just different types of jobs. But uh, it's, it was a tough place to grow up because there's not a lot that people imagine that you'll be, you know, that they're already assuming what you'll be and you're a part of that system. So in a way, you're kind of playing along with it too. And so the, the art, you know, obviously, you know, there are incredible artists everywhere. And I feel like there are artists in every one of us, you know, growing up, I met so many amazing young kids that had the potential to be artists, but probably never, ever went on to do anything. You know, that must have probably been what your future looked like growing up in terms of me. What, what point did you go, OK, I'm going to do this? I think I'm still thinking that often on most days. You know, it's it's one of those things where there weren't really any examples of what art was or what galleries were or what museums were. There weren't things that I did or knew about actually when I was younger. The closest probably I was to that kind of thing was cartoons. You know, I love cartoons. I was like, oh, I could be a cartoonist. You know, that's obtainable. That's something that I could see. And beyond that, it's just been about following this very long path where one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And behind that path, it's just me saying, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to have good intention behind what I'm doing and I'm never ever going to stop. 
I'm going to keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing and keep pushing. And essentially it's the result of many, many years of pushing, of hard work, of progression, of trying to get better at things, to try and iterate and improve things, um, trying to find out where my weaknesses are and, and improve on those. And, you know, eventually you kind of wake up where I am today as, as an artist, but still, there's still struggles there. It's just that no longer are you a starving artist, but the struggles of an artist do continue. Were you a starving artist? Yeah, totally. I've been, you know, was a starving artist for most of my career. You know, I, there'll be times where you're like, okay, I'm going to walk 50 blocks because it's, I can save 250 on the subway or you know, people invite you for dinner and you have to go right at the end because you can't afford the meal. So you go at the end and get a drink or just drink water. And, you know, I think, um, you know, there's definitely been those moments and in time where you're, you're struggling. But the great thing about being an artist in a way is that I feel that people will always support you on some level. You know, you can be an artist sleeping on someone's couch. You can't really be a lawyer or a doctor sleeping on someone's couch. It, it doesn't really kind of ring the same. Um, so I feel like, as long as you're true to what you're doing, people on some level will always catch you or support you and you give that back in return in some ways. Are you, are you looking on the lookout then as a young artist for sort of benefactors or people who love your art who will always buy it? Sort of, I mean, there's that relationship you hear about sort of the wealthy and the successful and the rich who sort of have artists who they kind of have under their wings and they collect their art and, you know, they're always there to buy it from them. And there's a sort of a... a quid pro quo going between the artist and, and the sort of rich benefactor kind of person who's looking after the artist. Did you have someone like that or how yeah. did it work for you? You know, that's an interesting idea, but it's, it's funny when you see that play out in real life, usually the patron or the benefactor, um, the, the person that they're supporting or giving money to is usually a result of uh, nepotism or someone that they're connected to anyway, that that doesn't actually need their patronage. Um, so someone like myself, I actually only started selling my own artwork a few years ago. It wasn't something that I did. So before then it was all about bartering and doing stuff either live or murals or experiences, uh, in exchange for, um, not always a monetary, but some kind of fair exchange. And, um, you know, I, I, I even at this point, I don't have a, patron or a benefactor and maybe someone who's watching this will be like you know i love to give Chantel a bunch of money to to imagine crazy big giant ideas uh, but i'm a strong believer in you use what you have access to so what i mean by that is if i have a big crazy idea like i want to do all the screens in times square then i'm going to see what i have who i'm connected to what i can do right now instead of playing this if game to see like, well, if I had this person and if I had that person and if I had this, it's like, what do I have and how can I make that happen? It, it, I was watching an interview with you today. Obviously we've never met. Um, and I was watching you being interviewed and I was looking at, and I was going, looking at your answer and something kept coming back, something kept coming out, jumping out at me, which was, the, which was basically you're all being reflective, right? You, you described it once as being very reflective of, you know, whatever's going on, whatever you're thinking, it's reflective in a what you you know, your it's a reflection of what you're thinking. And you talked about your dyslexia and getting words up there, and sometimes you spelt them wrong, sometimes you spelt them wrong on purpose. And then when people came to you and said, you know, um, you know, you spelt this word wrong, you'd be like, you know, thanks very much. It'd be the same answer whether you've done it on purpose or, or by mistake, whatever. 
But the point is, it, give, it, it gives it gave people this moment of kind of, again, you're kind of passing on your reflectivity, you're giving people the opportunity to reflect. Do you think the current situation we're in, we're doing the quarantine sessions, right? We're seeing here in this pandemic, we're all in the same boat, no one's going very far, we're all sitting here. So do you think that this pandemic, right, is, is, going, to, is going to be strangely beneficial to people's ability to be able to do what you do, which is reflect? You know, it, it depends how much people find distraction in what's happening now. You know, usually we're out in the world and we are bombarded with distractions, which are barriers to reflection and also barriers to being Busy. present, you know, and, and barriers to seeing, checking in with ourselves, you know, how we feel and, and what we think. And so, you know, I think what's happening now is some of those layers and barriers of distraction that blur this possible reflection or introspective conversation that we can have with ourselves those barriers are kind of dissolving a little bit and we are forced to spend more time with ourselves almost like a self in well not self-inflicted but world-inflicted um, self-exploration adventure and people like myself or i should say creative and artists we're at an advantage because we typically spend a lot of time by ourselves we're usually in our heads a lot we're usually reflecting a lot. And so I think it's quite interesting now to see how people are dealing with this. And you can see that people are going out into the world to distract themselves. And I think this is a perfect time to lean into that uncomfortableness. Yeah, well, that, that's what the question I was going to ask you next was, are you going, basically, are you going to, am I going to use this word because it's such a, normally such a filthy word that no one uses, but are, are you going to, are you going to exploit this moment that people are having as you said you're an artist you, you do this all all day you know you're reflecting you know that's the, that's the nature of who you are and suddenly all these people who didn't necessarily have the time to do it before are suddenly in a position where they can are you going to kind of is there a way that you can kind of try and exploit that like so when this all kind of everything calms down you can still kind of keep a hold of, of, of i don't know what these people you know this reflection i don't know yeah, Is yeah I, think, that... I think i get what you're saying maybe exploits the wrong word because when i think of exploit i think of something that is morally and ethically yeah, but know, I, a little bit that's what i said i wanted to say it but that's why i said it's such a filthy word normally where <laughs> i wanted to actually just i don't know it, 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 you can also exploit to to, to for yeah. good you know what i mean but at the same time you know i i, I get the question now also is a very tough time for artists because someone like myself my work and projects for the whole year have been cancelled essentially and so it's about not exploiting but it's about pivoting and it's about looking at the opportunities to come out of this stronger it's about looking at the opportunities to become more innovative to become more productive to connect more and to maybe in the way that you're saying is to exploit what people need or what they're looking for and i think people really want to know who they are and people want to know why they're doing all the things that we're doing because right now we have that time to sit and think did i need to be on those planes all that time did i need to be working so many hours did my job really mean that much to me and so now we're really being forced to reflect and to look at you know and i have this big tattoo on my arm that says why you know the why that we do everything and for me, I am leaning into that because I get to say, well, what's important for me? It's important for me to connect with creatives and artists. It's important for me to ask these questions that provoke uh, 
and ask people who they are at the core as people because fundamentally I, I believe where a big gap is is that we can talk about where we're from we can talk about what we do we can talk about the roles that we play in our life but what happens when that means nothing we're left with actually who are you as a human being who, who are you at the core what do you mean what are your values like when everything else doesn't mean anything tell us who you are and a lot of people don't know how to answer that and you know the questions that i'm posing and the examples that I'm given by living the life authentically and, and as honestly as I can is a roadmap to say, this is how I did it. And this is how I'm doing it. And this is how I'm answering who I am at the core. And this gives you the opportunity to also use that as a mirror for yourself to reflect on yourself. Instead of trying to round the truth down people's throat, tell people what the truth is, effectively what you're doing is provoking a thought process whereby they have to come to their own conclusions as to what the truth is, but you're putting them in the position of putting a question up there or you're a tattoo on your arm with like why, so you're forcing people effectively to, to think. Exactly, and I love that, I actually have a tattoo here that says think. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I just just in know. case you forget yes. I didn't know <laughs> we're just running <laughs> so, through all my tattoos you know your, so your main question is 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 who are you and you just asked it to all of us and to everyone out there but Chantal who are you yeah and are you you good good question I'm a creative human being that is flowing and traveling through this world using words and lines and and characters as a language and as a way of connecting you know essentially i also am trying to figure out who i am by putting these lines and words and phrases and characters out into the world and using the fragments of answers that i get back as a way of building this answer for myself it's interesting, you know, when I look at your art, you know, and, and I really mean this in, in all due respect, you know, you look at it and you see stick figures, you see lines, you see sort of almost childlike, you know, um, writing, it's, it's written with sharpies, it's, it's sort of almost as if you think, I could do that, but I can't. And, I, and I've tried and I've, I know, and it doesn't look like what you do. And for some reason, when you do what you do, it's incredibly, um, sort of just stunning and your, your eyes flow with it and it's how how what, what is it that you're doing that is so different and I've obviously look artists sometimes do things like paint a canvas white or black or they do something a modern art where people are like scratching their head going and this is art but what you do is clearly art and it clearly takes people's imagination away and you get these incredible commissions but don't, don't tell him don't tell him <laughs> make him out Man, this is a nice. This is where, like, you have to sit there and be a little bit reflective and work it out for yourself. You know what I mean? Don't please don't tell him. Make, he's got plenty of time on his hands. Come on, give him something to do. So like next or week I'm gonna see you, Nigel, like drawing on everything. Right. <laughs> you know, it's it's a good question and and it's a good point. You know, I often um, you know let people know, like, hey, like you can only draw a stick figure. Great. Like me too. Let's collaborate because it's the whole point to show that you know, and I have pens which have my name on it. It's like the pen is such a simple tool. You know, this is so accessible and so simple. And I love the fact that I do something that is so accessible and so simple, but the fact that we can all do it and we can all create our own line and we can all create our own mark 
the fact that I've managed to create a line that is recognizably mine, the amount of work that has gone into that is profound. You know, we can all draw lines. Everyone on this planet in some way can create their own line. And now you have to think about how much work, time and effort has gone into that line so it is recognizably someone's. At the same time, I want to encourage people to be creative. I want to inspire them to find out what they love to do. And so using this simple form or this simple line or this simple message to influence people to try their own line or to try what they can do, you know, then I'm, I'm winning because the more creative people out there or the more people that we have drawing, you know, the better, the better we are off. And, you know, it's, it's um, I'm, I'm happy because my book just came out this week and, you know, in this book, Congratulations. thank you. You know, in this book, I have a, an essay in there written by Catherine Stout from the ICA, ICA in London and um, Hans Ulich did, you know, one of the world's biggest curators did the interview for it and there's projects in there from you know the collaboration with the new york city ballet to governor's island to everything in between but everything comes from a line and so it's an example of passion of a simple tool and of a simple message and it shows if you put imagine behind imagination behind that you can take it to such you can sky's the limit space is the limit basically so when we first met, you were doing also doing projections with your with your lines and your and your sort of graffiti work. Do you call it graffiti? Is that is it okay to say that? How what do you call it? I don't call it graffiti because you know, like, what's your definition of graffiti? I mean, I, I see graffiti is when people draw with spray paints and, and lines and they draw on walls and they draw and things like that. And I guess when I see some of your stuff, some of it has, has looked like kind of graffiti-esque, especially back then when we first started working together, when we first collaborated, because you all worked with a pen on a pad and it basically, it was almost as if the light itself was being sprayed onto the wall as you drew it. Anyway, that, I, again, one wants to be very careful when talking to artists just in case one insults them, but it, it was not that, it was just this, because I love graffiti artists as well, but it was more just the style of what you were doing. I couldn't, everyone who came to this party, and by the way, I commissioned um, Chantal, if that's the way, right way to write, to, to help work with us on a party where she was to music, actually drawing um, onto a huge wall in a, in a photo studio. And people to this day, it's like a decade ago, I believe, or, or something close to that, like eight, nine years ago, people still say to me, that was the best party they ever went to. That was the most amazing event. They couldn't believe what this artist was doing. And, and they know and they've seen your work ever since and they couldn't believe it. And they thanked me for introducing me to, you know, you to them at that point. And it was just your process of how you were translating the music and drawing. You know, that's something you started with, right? In Japan, you got really into this, working with DJs and, and following them along. Tell us about that process. Tell us about the music and working with music and combining all these different art forms. Yeah, actually, I have a good memory of that. For some reason, why did I end up taking home a block of cheese this big after that party? Because you were a starving artist. <laughs> I took home like a block of cheese this big. It was bigger than That's my head. That's where that cheese went. <laughs> you know, so my, my past life or you could say the beginnings of my career started in Japan, in Tokyo, in the clubs. And uh, two types of clubs, like the avant-garde clubs, so the more um, underground noise music, kind of weird stuff. And then the, um, 
kind of big clubs, you know, the, the big mega clubs in, in Japan. And so what I essentially do, did is that I was a live club illustrator. So I would draw live drawn digital or analog visuals and they were done in time or alongside musicians, DJs and dancers. And it was amazing. You know, I, I love that career. You know, I'd, I'd come in with a, a drawing tablet, connect it to some kind of drawing software. And then for hours and hours, draw to the beat, you know, zoom in, zoom out. The crowds go, woo, I would write, woo, I'd zoom that in and out. You know, you see your friend or you like the DJ and you write their name and you make that bigger. And it was just very fun and spontaneous. And it was like the visuals were the foreground instead of being the background. Because, you know, in Japan, they have all these, or they had, or they have these giant mega clubs where they, you have BJs playing all these video clips and stuff like that. And it seems irrelevant. It seems like background. But when you see a line that's being drawn live and, and it's obviously an experience that's been created in real time, there's something so special and unique about that experience. And there's something that, um, wait, my dog's jumping up here. And there's something that, um, you know, makes it the foreground as well. I love it when the dog gets involved. Yeah, with it. sorry. No, it's all good. My dog has just gone out for a little walk. But interestingly enough, you know, one of the things about your art, and I remember this very clearly because we had lots of, obviously it was lots of children at this particular party, um, is that your art appeals to children as much as it does adults. And I think a lot of art doesn't. A lot of art is appeals to certain demographics. Certain people like certain types of things. Not everyone loves everything, but everybody loves your stuff. Everybody, Every, doesn't matter how old they are, doesn't matter whether they, they all identify with it. That is something which makes you very, very unique. And, and I, I think that's the first thing that startled me was that it wasn't for just for children. It wasn't just for adults. It wasn't for, and everybody left thinking, talking and asking and about it. Is that something you do deliberately or is that something you've, you've noticed or you concentrate on? It's funny, a long time someone asked me, you know, who's, who is your art for? And I said, everyone. And this person told me, if it's for everyone, it's for no one. And I said, I disagree. You know, I feel like it has a message and it has a positivity that it does apply or impact everyone. And, you know, some people might not like it. Great. If it's not for you, then you don't have to see it. You don't have to look at it. You don't have to be a part of it. But in a way, I do feel like there is something in the, the work that I'm creating that universally is for everyone on, on some level. Yeah. Do you know, do you know why I just noticed something where I think differs majorly, actually, if you're going to, because now you're doing big, you know, you're doing big stuff, you're doing big commissions. But one, the one thing I've noticed, and I don't mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the one thing you're not looking for, you're not asking for is, and not seeking is validation of your art, which is really quite refreshing. And I really, do you know what, I'm going to almost jump to Nigel on that for the next question, if he's got one for you, because I do not want you to have to validate what I've, <laughs> what I've said. <laughs> How about passing the back? I think you're absolutely right. But then talk about new young artists. What is it like for young artists in, in, in the art world to get validated? How do they you know, get that recognition and, and, and struggle to get recognized by galleries and to be taken seriously because, you know, it, it is a very, very tough world out there. And obviously you've gone through this, you know, you've, you've struggled, you've had to make a name for yourself and you have to stick to your guns, but you haven't looked for validation. And I know this even as a photographer, talking to young photographers, telling them that you can't ask for everyone's opinion all the time. You cannot ask everyone to like you. You can't hope to please everybody. It doesn't matter whether I, like your photograph or not 
do you like your photograph is the question. Um, do you think the same way? Is that your recommendation to young artists? And how do they get noticed by the galleries? Yeah, completely. And, and you know, I think if you're, as an artist, if you're looking for validation from the galleries, then you're doing it from the wrong place, you know, because at the end of the day, you know, and people, this is where people argue with me or that the, there's some kind of conflict sometimes is that, you know, back in the day, maybe you needed that validation because the gallery is the person or the entity that sold your work and, and you know, gave you a living. Right now, you know, galleries are not the art. The art world and the art market are two different things. You know, if you want to be an artist and you're making art, then you're making art because you can't do anything else. You know, your plan A, your plan B, your plan C is that I need to make art because it's an, an incredible part of my soul and I have to do this and get it out. I might be successful, I might not be successful, but what does success actually mean? If you look at galleries, uh, galleries are an e-commerce platform, essentially. You know, galleries sell your work. You can sell your work online. You can sell it to your friends. You can sell it to your family. And you can approach it in a very grassroots way. And I tell young people, you know, A, you're in no rush, so be patient. And B, going back to something I said a little bit earlier, it's like, what do you have access to? Like, don't play the if game. If I had a gallery, if I had that patron, if I had money, if I had exposure, if I had this, if, 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 what do you have? You have the work that you create, you have your persistence, you have your patience, and you have your, your bedroom. You know, you can do an exhibition in your bedroom. You can invite your friends and family, you know, in a different type of world when we can do that. Um, what do you have access to? And make and share, make and share, make and share. And it's a grassroots approach. And that's pretty much how I got to where I am now is that I'm in no rush. I'm not seeking validation because I don't need it because I enjoy what I do and I do it because I can't do anything else. Um, ideally, the goal has always been to make this 100% of what I do. And, you know, the, the whole point is about can I evolve and can I push this and, and can I grow this? And do I understand why I'm doing this? You, you talked about the, the process a little bit for a second there about, you know, I guess coming up with new ideas. And that's a, obviously a huge, the, the, one of the, the biggest part of this really, right, is, is how do you approach a new project? What happens when you get, you know, you're given a space, you're given this gigantic blank canvas, you know, and it's again and again and again. Are you reinventing? Are you just, what is that? When you see that blank canvas, what's the first thing that happens to you in your, in your process? Yeah. So for me, I'm often asking why or who, you know, so for example, uh, I recently at the end of last year, I did a project with the, tr the Trust of Governors Island. And they essentially said, you know, Chantel, pick a canvas on the island. You know, we, we've got all these sorts of old buildings. And I, you know, considered all the buildings and, and the ferry and, 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 you know, the potential canvases that they had on the island. And I thought, well, you know, I've wanted for a long time to create a space for contemplation, for poetry, for peace. I wonder if they have anything that could speak to that. And they actually had a decommissioned chapel, a chapel that had been decommissioned 20 or 25 years ago, essentially this you know, beautiful old white church. And I said, I wanna use this space. So I knew the why, because I wanted to create a space for poetry and peace and contemplation. And I knew where now in this, in this beautiful chapel. And then the elements of what a space like that could be was about me then just imagining walking into that space. And essentially what it ended up being is this, you know, 
we, we ended up fixing it up because it you know got quite destroyed in, in sandy and stuff so we had to spend some time fixing it up but essentially it became this beautiful white canvas and and you walk in and you would take your shoes off and there's all this drawing on the walls next to you and the words shoe 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 so you know okay i gotta take my shoes off and then there was a large drawing on the floor in the form of a maze and so naturally you're invited to walk that drawing and walk that maze and become calm and quiet and then i thought well if someone's walking this maze and they're becoming calm and quiet why maybe it's because they need to take in some information from the space so in the space, I wrote um, many, many, many phrases that began with may. May you be strong. May you be wise. May you sleep soundly at night. May we save trees. But these phrases were all fragmented. So it looked like the letters were all falling. So you had to walk that maze and become calm so that you could piece the phrases together. So essentially one thing is leading to another, leading to another, leading to another. So you're asking why, you're asking where, you're asking how, you're visually imagining what that process is as you walk through it. Um, something like the New York City Ballet, that's, that's a huge challenge. And I said, I don't know where to start here. So I'm gonna start by asking who is it for? And so I spoke to 20 dancers and I, and I asked them a whole list of questions about where they begin and the dance ends and why they do what they do and, um, and, and many more questions. And, and those gave me the why, you know, I didn't have the why for myself then I had to go out to in a way reflect it back in. And, and so I think with each project, doesn't matter how large or small it is, just asking yourself, what's the point essentially is a really good starting point. Is any, is any and everything a canvas? It used to be. I used to walk around the city and be like, I could draw on that, I could draw on that, I could draw on that, I can draw on that. I do that a lot less now. I don't know why that is, but... Where do you draw the line? That was a good question. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely I mean... drawn the line. Um, you know, it just depends. You know, if I think things are, are a good fit or they're a bad fit. If they're a bad fit, you say no. If they're a good fit, you say yes. Um, you know, there's definitely things I love to draw on out there around the city. You know, there's lots of blank fun canvases like the Guggenheim or airplanes and helicopters and, you know, kind of those those bigger iconic um, silhouettes that are out in the world. But, you know, also it, it's just quite satisfying drawing in a little notebook at the same time. Do you know, you, you know, obviously you're, you're living in the US right now. You've traveled the sort of the world in many ways and you're from Thamesmead, you spent time in Japan. There's a lot of different, very different cultures there. Yeah, but there is an element of sort of stoicness to you, which reminds me of, of Japan. I don't know why, whenever I often, when I first met you, and even now looking at you with your shirt done up all the way to the top, and there's various things about you. Are you very inspired by the Japanese culture? Is that something that, that really, I guess, gave you a lot of general inspiration? Yes, in many ways. Less so now. I've been, you know, living in the US for 10 plus years, but... Definitely my earlier career and my earlier work was inspired by starting my career there, you know, and, and what I was taught in many ways is this idea of mastery, is this idea of patience, you know, when you move to um, a city like Tokyo and you're in a country like Japan and you get to see how seriously people take the smallest craft you know, a, gener a family for generations have been making chopsticks and perfecting it and making sure that they improve on it with every generation. And, and, and seeing so many examples of that really resonated with myself in that almost like long game, for lack of a better word. 
And then on the other hand, when I moved to Tokyo, the work I was creating in London as an art student or as a young adult was very angry. It was very lost. Um, it was quite dark. And moving to Tokyo, I shed a lot of that. You know, I, I didn't, I felt like I didn't have the right to be as angry in Tokyo because Tokyo never did anything to me. Whereas in London, it's like, you know, this city did this, it did this. I'm a part of this system. I'll never do anything here. But then you get to somewhere like Tokyo and you're not a part of this system or this structure. And so I didn't feel the right to be as angry anymore. So there was definitely this lightness and this cuteness and this obsessiveness and this sense of time and patience that crept into my work and, and reflection that's the word of the hour that that definitely creeped into the work yeah you know i spent time in japan and one of the things that i noticed there is they do everything and many things not everything but they do a lot of things to extremes as well they sort of push things to to back to sort of levels where any other cultures sometimes think that's like bonkers you know whether it's you know making something doing something even the, the, the concept of creating sushi the process of becoming a sushi chef and the, the many 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 years and you know you hear about how you cut a piece of salmon just so uh, you know and, and you know and the price of tuna and how much someone will pay millions of dollars for a tuna or something it seems so crazy it seems so out there and i, I remember people at the end of the day businessmen going to drink and they couldn't hold their alcohol and they'd be sitting on, on stools and just drinking, 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 and then falling off their stool and literally passing out in the street. I mean, was that sort of obsessiveness? Did you, did you absorb that too? Is that something that uh, inspires you? So I wasn't drinking, 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 passing out on a stool, but uh, I think for people like me who have an obsessive quality about us, it's a magical place because you can literally throw yourself into whatever you do and you won't be judged. Um, it's, it's almost that you're celebrated in that. And so the great thing about being there at that time and having this obsessive quality about myself is that you meet other people who are as obsessed with what they do as you are. And so it was a magical place for collaborations and collaborations with other visual artists and with dancers and with DJs and with musicians. And I think that's why um, my career initially there was as successful as it was is because everyone was so passionate and obsessive with what they were doing. Collaborations, you talk about collaborations, you've done some amazing ones. I mean, you obviously you like to draw on everything and anything and you've drawn on shoes, you've drawn on clothes, you've got a great collaboration with Puma, um, you've got your new book out right now. You've done a tequila, for goodness sakes, 1800 tequila. Now we love tequila. What, what, did you get to drink this tequila? What was your inspiration <laughs> for the tequila? Actually, yeah, I should have brought a bottle out. Um, so the tequila was fun. So I, I did a, I think I'm the first, at that time, the first living artist to do a whole series of 1800 bottles. And, you know, 1800 is, is a, a brand of Hervé Cuervo that's been around for 220 plus years. It's family owned, 13th generation. And they, uh, they flew me to, to uh, Guadalajara. And then I went to a small town called Tequila, where they make, blue, they make tequila with blue agave. And, uh, and it was a kind of bizarre experience to go to a town called Tequila and see that tequila is sold everywhere and anywhere. And everyone was drinking it. And, um, you know, so... I yeah, so actually I, I designed all the work first and I, I said to them, you know, I, I, I was straight up, I was like, I don't really drink that much. I don't drink tequila. Um, so if, I, if I'm going to do this, 
I want to create drawings that I want to do. And I want to create these, you know, beautifully designed bottles and put my art, you know, incorporate my art, but I want the drawings to have a message. So one of them was called Be Honest. One of them was called Who Are You? Um, and, and so that's interesting. You know, I love the idea that someone is drinking out of a bottle of tequila that has my drawing on it. And the, there's this big message that says, be honest. It's like honesty in a bottle. So be honest. Have you drunk enough? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 be drunk. Yeah. Or, or, no, or no, no, no. I, I didn't go with those. I went with like the bigger existential questions. So the, the sense of humour part, that's not, that's not playing a role here, Chantal. You're, you're very, the, the big questions, it's all very serious. Which, by the way, when we're having a drink, we like to get quite existential, don't we, Tom? Um. um yeah, see. <laughs> perfect. perfect. So as far as talking about collaborations, like you're one with Puma. You do lots of different ones. You've got these sort of very kind of serious art projects that you're doing with the, the, the top of the top. And then you've also got these sort of very, in a way, kind of commercial projects that you're doing with people like Puma. How do the two marry? And do you just, is that just a big part of it? Because I guess there are some artists out there who may say, have you sold out if you do something like that? Yeah, but what does sold out mean, right? You know, it's such a bizarre thing. Like I sold out because I'm making money. And it's like, you know, I think artists have to ask themselves, okay, so you're the living artist making work and you have the consumer that is buying the work if you're a living artist. And then you have all these people in between, you know, the art curators and the art advisors. So what, all of these people in between can make money and they're not selling out. But then if I make money from what I'm doing, it's selling out. Mm. Um, can we keep it reasonable? Right now, during the quarantine sessions, during this pandemic, to me, sold out means you seriously simply can't get lavatory paper in the supermarket. <laughs> I mean, that really, you know, sold out. It's the only bit of sold out I know right now. So Chantal has bought it all to use as a canvas. <laughs> there, there you go. I'll mark it up and sell it to you. But essentially, uh, Puma was amazing. I, you know, I did uh, three different collections with them. And the whole point about, you know, something like that is as long as you're doing something that is to a high standard and to a high quality and something that you're proud of, regardless of the e industry and the medium, it's a good fit, you know. Selling out is when you ethically and morally do something that is against what you you believe in. You know, there's this big thing with with art that we've we've really tricked artists into this idea of selling out, right? We we say, oh, if you work commercially, which means you're getting paid 100%, that means you're selling out. But if you look at most successful artists that go through a gallery system, what's the work that they end up doing at the end? It's commercial work. But they're, in a way, uh, allowed to do that commercial work now because the gallery system somewhere is getting that cut. And so, you know, essentially, ethically and morally doesn't align with what you're doing selling out. If you're doing something to a high standard and a high quality across different mediums and different industries that is innovative and has an important message that allows people to uh, collect it because it's accessible and you get paid for it, not selling out. Hell yeah. <laughs> and I 100% agree. And you know, I, I like to ask these tough questions. Brings out the fighter in Chantal. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's I funny. Like actually, on a simple note, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of um, just uh, everyday people don't know that galleries take 50% sometimes more from artists. Like they, they're not even aware of that, which is is crazy sometimes. Which is enough to make anybody angry, yeah. quite frankly.
I mean, look, one of the things I was also curious about too, and it's it's, it's not that it is a dark question, but there's an element of, you know, it's tough to be an artist, it's tough to be a success, and it's just as, as an artist, period, the end. But have you found that also being female, being black, um, you know, it, things like that, have those become issues for you, you know, as far in the world of art and, and being recognized and being judged? You know, I think as an artist, people, um especially if you don't come from access or privilege, they'll always be trying to exploit you and um, take advantage of you, regardless of, of who you are and what you look like. Um, someone like myself, I've already had to fight so hard to get to where I am, you know, just even getting out of a class system, let alone being gay and black and a woman and all of these other things. Um, you know, of course they play a role, you know, people are always judging you and undermining you and, and, um, but, that's, that's not my job to educate those people. It's my job just to, to do what I'm doing and work hard. And, you know, sometimes I think people are a little disrespectful in what I do sometimes. And, and sometimes you just have to educate them or just walk away. It's not even worth your time sometimes. So, so yes, it definitely has played a role in, on some level. Do I take notice of it? Probably not. And that's probably the reason why you're such a success. I mean, you are, as I said at the very beginning, one of the most charming, low-key individuals that I've ever met, um, who is incredibly sweet and made an incredible success. And, you know, everyone from my children to my friends think you're amazing. And that is the thing for me is the, is the sign of someone who is really destined for greatness, is when they can sort of transcend age and transcend if you like gender and it doesn't become about any of those things it doesn't come about the color about your sexuality where you're from or any of that art speaks for itself and quite frankly people obviously commission you to draw on everything and anything <laughs> <laughs> to draw on it all um chantal before we let you go you've been amazing we'd like to do a little what we call last orders on uh, shaken and stirred which is a rapid fire question is that is that okay yeah sounds good tom you still all right there yeah, good. Listening in. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Still here. <laughs> a little nervous because I don't know. I don't. I never quite know what the questions are going to be. I'm either going to be like terrified that you've asked completely the wrong question to, to completely the inappropriate questions, or fabulous, which is it's awful if I had to give him a compliment afterwards, or just a complete carcass. But anyway, let's see what the questions are. Come on, now. make it interesting. Favorite tipple. A mojito. Ooh, a mojito. So wait a second. Why were you not drinking a mojito? <laughs> I don't have the supplies at home. I, you know, I don't even have English breakfast at home. sent you the supplies. <laughs> okay, we'll have to do this all over again then. Best thing you've stolen from a party? Uh, an empty bottle. I thought you were going to say cheese. Oh. <laughs> By the way, they were giving those away and it was this massive block of cheese. <laughs> Which comes first? Black or white when you're creating art? Black. Um, Japan or America? It depends. Ah, very, very diplomatic of you. Um, audience, no audience? Always an audience. Keeps you honest. There you go. Shaken or stirred? Shaken. Shaken? Yeah. Love it. We'll shake it up a little bit. People who said shaken. Almost everybody says stirred. Fantastic. Chantal Martin, everybody. And where can we get your book? Have a copy here. You can get it from all your good bookshops, you know, Barnes and Nobles, Amazon, local bookshops, Spoonbill in New York. 
What are they? What are they going to Barnes and Noble? And they ask for Chantal Martin lines. Chantal Martin lines, you and you can also get it on Chantal Martin's website, which is chantalmartin.com. Fantastic. There you go, everybody. This is shaken and stirred. Thank you so much. Stay safe. These are the quarantine sessions. Cheers, guys. Bye, Chantal. Cheers. Nice it's been a pleasure. Thanks, love. Cheers. Bye.